This is the Tribune Audio Network. There's no doubt humanity's survival will depend on our ability to explore the solar system. Still, space is expensive and Americans need to be sold on its value. In the 1960s, NASA embarked on a revolutionary sales pitch. As more people started to buy in, the space race sparked new technologies and stoked Cold War fears. On this episode of the Backstory Podcast, how NASA got the American public to enlist in the space race. And decades later, we visit remnants of the Cold War, missile sites hidden across the Chicago area. Let's get to the Backstory. Six hundred million people around the world watched the moon landing in 1969. The Apollo 11 astronauts would later say what surprises them about the world's reaction is not people's elation that they are meeting the Americans who walked on the moon, but that the historic mission is truly, as Armstrong notes, a victory for people, all of them, everywhere, a victory for Earth. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other thing, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. JFK inspires America, but NASA has no idea how to put a man on the moon and bring him back safely. Rich Jurek is the author of Marketing the Moon. The mission has President Kennedy's support. But what about America's? I think it was a tough sell. I mean, uh, initially it was a geopolitical sell. So we were in the middle of the Cold War and there was fear that the Soviets would be first in space. Instead of hiring public relations people to control the message, NASA hires former journalists to create stories and visuals to help tell and sell the story. Features on the astronauts cement a personal connection with Americans. There's product placement. NASA incorporates consumer products like Sony cassette recorders and Tang. Like the energy breakfast drink of Earth, Tang. That gives people a relatable connection to the space program. The government has scientists and increased funding. But what really propels the people of NASA? Art, literature, and imagination. They were inspired by people like Jules Verne and the original stories that uh, talked about going to the moon. And Jules Verne's From Earth to the Moon was the first time that a story was written that had a scientific basis. The astronauts may be the stars, but the success of the Apollo program relies on 400,000 people. Gene Cernan, the last man to walk on the moon, famously said, we were just uh, the tip of the arrow. The strength of the bow was the 400,000 people that were back on Earth that helped us get there. Every one of them had a special role to play. And without that person, you could argue that the whole thing would fall apart. Calculate launch and landing, but without this conversion, the capsule stays in orbit. We can't bring it back home. The movie Hidden Figures reveals the women who crunch numbers with pencils and calculators. 400,000 stories like that of another unsung hero, George Lowe, the subject of Jurek's next book. George Lowe is the ghost in the machine behind NASA. And early on, he wrote the report that put together the original Apollo program that when Kennedy came into office, 
It was George Lowe's report that landed on his desk that Kennedy read that said, we can do this. Today, people generally have positive feelings about the moon landing, exploration, adventure, and of course, beating the Soviets. But in the 1960s, many oppose it. At a time of social unrest, many feel the benefits don't justify the cost. In the 1970s, Jurek says for many people, the moon becomes simply a dull geology story. But like Jules Verne's book that inspired the mission's scientists and astronauts, the Apollo program has inspired a generation of innovators. The fourth wave of the Industrial Revolution, the digitization of our society, really had its roots in the Apollo program. And the inspiration to the young people like uh, Bill Gates and Steve Jobs, and right now if you look at Jeff Bezos and Elon Musk and all the people who are responsible for the innovation and the technological innovation in our country, we're all children of Apollo and we're inspired by and beneficiaries of the direct investment we made in Apollo. And one would argue that the smartphone that we all have in our pockets uh, is really a result of all the basic research uh, in science and engineering that went into the Apollo program. The speech Kennedy was about to give before being shot was about reinvigorating the space program. One of Lyndon B. Johnson's first acts as president is to rename Cape Canaveral the John F. Kennedy Space Center. Johnson vows to finish JFK's mission. When the Apollo spacecraft orbits the moon, so does the unmanned Russian spacecraft Luna 15. The Russians give us critical data to ensure the two crafts won't collide. The space race starts as a Cold War competition, but it unites the world. Even two bitter enemies find common cause in the greatest achievement in history for mankind. It was one of awe, it was one of inspiration, uh, and it was certainly very iconic. I consider myself a child of the Apollo generation, and having grown up in that period, space tends to follow us as we grow up, whether it was in television, in movies. And so those early images just become iconic, and when you see them on TV, uh, particularly with the Apollo 50th anniversary, all those emotions and memories come flooding back. Even before the race for space, we had our eyes on the skies, wondering if the Soviets would send bombers through U.S. airspace. Today, you are still surrounded by the remnants of that Cold War defense system. There are a number of missile sites here in the Chicago metro area. You've probably driven by one without even knowing it. We visited with one veteran who wants to change that by teaching a new generation this Cold War backstory. It's not top secret, but it's still hidden beneath the earth with the same view of the sky. Ten feet below Vernon Hills in this damp cellar, signs of another era when people lived in fear of a surprise Soviet attack. The rust is the only thing to worry about now. As a young kid, we would go and walk as close as we could, find the fence, walk around until they told us to leave. The area surrounding Route 60 and Milwaukee Avenue in Vernon Hills is evidence of a happier ending to those dark days, a bustling intersection of strip malls. But 65 years ago, cornfields. In 1953, the U.S. Army begins building air defense systems here and around the country. Throughout Chicago, if you know where to look, 
you can find the remains of this. are proven weapons guarding our cities, homes, and factories. America's last line of defense. For an enemy plane to come here would really fly through a gauntlet to get here. So these were last ditched to shoot down these planes. Brett Blomberg is a veteran from Mount Prospect. He was a fire control technician on the USS Barry. Chicago is the railroad hub of the country, still is and was. It's a freshwater port with access to the sea, large industrial base, banking, large businesses, um, industrial complex. So it's something you want to protect. The threat could come from anywhere. Could they sneak through the first line of defense way north in Canada and then sneak in down the Great Lakes, down Lake Michigan? The missiles are the first guided surface air missiles that could detect, track, and shoot down enemy aircraft. They named them Nike, the daughter of Zeus. The Greek goddess of strength, speed, and victory flew around battlefields, rewarding the victors of war. Driving through Vernon Hills, you can't miss the chain stores on Route 60. Just south of there is the high school and the Lake County Public Works Department. No sign of missile launchers. In fact, even some of the county workers had no idea the missile magazine was even there until Blomberg showed up. U.S. Naval Sea Cadets are helping restore it. We're also teaching young people everything from basic hand tools, using a broom, to painting, why we're doing this, and teaching some Cold War history. Blomberg opens the hatch and takes us 10 feet underground to a dark and damp cellar that's 50 feet by 60 feet. It's been abandoned for decades. This is the underground missile magazine where the Nike Ajax missiles were stored and then they needed to bring the missiles up to the surface. They put one missile at a time on the elevator, open the overhead doors, run the elevator up. There are 3,000 former Nike sites across the country, including 23 in the Chicago area. A control site at Montrose Harbor is now the Dock Restaurant. A site in Addison is known as Nike Park with swings and baseball fields. A site in Northwest Indiana is now a facility for paintball called Blast Camp. No Nike site ever saw combat. Since it wasn't used, does that mean it wasn't needed or was it a deterrent nobody wanted to try? The Vernon Hill site is deactivated in 1963 after just six years. By 1974, new technology makes all these sites obsolete. Some sites remain in disrepair. Some are used for government storage. For Vernon Hills, Blomberg hopes to turn it into a museum. The public can come and, and appreciate and understand what was here, why it was here. And the engineering, the math and the science that went with it to put it all together, it's amazing. A museum is still a few years away. In time, he hopes Vernon Hills' new Nike Missile Museum will inspire kids to develop the next generation of technology to protect the United States. Regardless of what that technology looks like, the strategy to defend America will always incorporate the strength and speed symbolized by the goddess Nike.
Thanks for listening to Backstory. If you liked what you heard, please take a minute to subscribe to our podcast or leave a review. To watch our full coverage of the story and see some that didn't make it to our podcast, visit us online at wgntv.com slash backstory. This has been a production of the Tribune Audio Network.